But just before we get started, I would like to say a big thank you to Naylor Agility for sponsoring this podcast. They are a UK equipment provider for agility equipment. They specifically produce tunnels, tunnel bags, agility jumps and stacking blocks as well as wobble boards. So Naylor Agility have been a huge support in me starting this podcast and they provide fantastic high quality equipment. I cannot recommend them enough. So thank you Naylor again for supporting the Agility Rose Talk and Train podcast and without further ado let's get into the episode. Hi Craig, thank you ever so much for joining me for a podcast episode. I'm really excited for this one. I think we've got brilliant questions here and it's going to be really informative. So just to get started, for anyone that doesn't know you, can you give yourself an introduction, um, a little bit about what you do in terms of with the dogs and with um, toy play and what your dogs are at the minute that you've got? Yes, absolutely. So thank you, first of all, so much for having me on. I very much appreciate the invite. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I very much appreciate it. So, oh God, it depends on how much history you want, really, at least. Um, it's, it's a long, getting old now, so it's a long story. Um, but basically, for the means of today, um, in my late teens and early 20s, I spent like a lot of time traveling to and from Europe, uh, teaching dogs to bite for a sport called Mondio Ring, which uh, consists of obedience, agility, and criminal apprehension. Um, and when working with those dogs, particularly in the elementary stages of bite foundations, um, which is very much derived around the predatory motor pattern, um, particularly the chasing aspect and grab bites and all of the other stuff that's um, included in the predatory motor pattern, um, there was a big differentiation between dogs that were genetically gifted, that yeah. could bite things and were really happy to do so, which people consider you know good dogs they're very good for the job and then other dogs that just needed a little bit more development and those dogs really captivated my interest because dogs that people would often consider not um not capable of the job at hand mm -hmm. very often were with you know a good understanding of behavior and a good manipulating manipulation of training to make sure that you're setting them up for wins helping them to succeed and really just building them and, and, and building them and building confidence building tenacity building motivation um which worked really well so i spent a lot of time traveling to and forth um, i've been very lucky to travel the world training dogs i'm a board certified behavior consultant and trainer i work for the police as a general purpose police dog training instructor um i'm the founder of along with my wife marita the ogilvy dogs training center which is in our farm in bourne um and my day-to-day -day at the moment is primarily spent building dog training businesses to be honest with you at least yeah. i travel internationally and do a lot of seminars i don't do anything like one-to-ones that much anymore to be honest with you mm -hmm. um, it's all based on developing uh, dog training businesses so a long story but i tried to give you the short version <laughs> Amazing. No, I was going to say, I've, I've followed um, yourself for quite a while with, in terms of the um, training aspect of it. And it's really interesting to see the work you're doing with um, fellow trainers at the moment. I think that's such a nice and such a niche sort of area as well, because there's not really anything out there for people at the moment for that. So, yeah, it's been really interesting to follow along on that. Absolutely. I'm pleased. I'm pleased you've enjoyed the journey. It's very, very rewarding, at least the dog training world has been extraordinarily kind to me. I've um, like had a fantastic time over, God, like way, way over a decade <laughs> now of being involved. So it's um, my way of giving back. And yeah, I, I really enjoy not only um, traveling, training and working with dogs, but 
really, really enjoyed the aspect of giving back and helping develop, you know, at this point, hundreds of dog training businesses, which is cool. It's, it's a really, really nice thing to be able to yeah. do. 100% and I say if you do something you love you'll never work a day in your life so <laughs> exactly right that is the truest statement that you'll ever hear Lisa I promise you <laughs> <laughs> awesome so um we'll get started with the questions then I've got some fantastic ones I'm really excited to um look look at this one first so my dog isn't interested in toys is this a myth that some dogs just naturally aren't interested in toys or is it the result of their exposure and relationship to toys so it's not a myth. It's absolutely not a myth. It drives back to what I was saying to begin with. So genetic influence on behaviour is a large driver um, of the dog's interest or tying back to that predatory motor pattern, which is usually has a solid crossover with regards to a dog's interest in toy play. Um, yeah. And, you know, people will always go back to and it will forever be the case that you get the nature and nurture conversation, which is basically... Mm -hmm and environmental influence on behavior because you know you can have a, a dog that is a superstar as a puppy and if the training doesn't quite suit the dog you can see a regression um, or a degradation in behavior however um, there are a lot of dogs that aren't as genetically or naturally inclined to engage in toy play yeah and those ones are the dogs that it's the best one to develop at least like those, those are the dogs that are the challenges I always call um like if you've got a dog like a Malinois like I've, I'm very very used to working with Malinois I've done that all of my adult life working bred German Shepherds Rottweilers Dobermans um and Border Collies like the, all of the working type breeds yeah. for a lot of those uh dogs you know that they're, they're tying their genetics leads them to be very interested in toy play and they've got a lot of gas in the tank um so a lot, <laughs> a lot of the time those people come to me because they've got too much like the dog's biting them they don't like to let go they sort of um bridge their adaptive uh uh arousal uh, threshold very quickly so they can't think in a state of arousal so those dogs i find um because of experience and doing it so often they're really easy to work with the more challenge which i also really enjoy and do a lot of and, and have a lot of fun sort of developing are dogs that aren't quite so tied back to their interest in toys and it's really just manipulating the way in which you introduce toy play to make sure that the individual is comfortable with the process unfortunately with toy play um and again this isn't for everybody but what a lot of people do is inadvertently put a lot of social pressure on their dogs when they try to get them to play so if you were to ask you know 10 uh, pet dog owners um to try to get the dogs to play inevitably what a good seven out of those 10 would do is move towards the dog and wiggle the toy in their face to try to get them to play and like what i always call that is like offensive action or being an offensive dog trainer is where i always try to create defensive dog trainers where we're moving off of the back foot creating reinforcement in which the dog wants to move towards the item so that we're then in a position in which the dog is making the choice to doing so rather than inadvertently socially pressuring them into doing so which is so common so if you've got like a malinois puppy you could wiggle your finger in their face and they'll bite it at least <laughs> nine times out of ten is not a problem <laughs> Those dogs aren't the dogs that we're worrying about. But, you know, potentially if you've got a dog that's a little bit more sensitive, you know, due to genetic influence on behaviour, environmental history, learning experience, um, and all of the other things that can influence behaviour, if you used to wiggle a toy in that little dog's face, they might never play with a toy ever again. <laughs> they may, it may be way, way too stressful for them, and they may take it as a real aversive experience. And this is why, for me, having a really well-rounded understanding of behaviour markers and body language is important because a lot of people overlook what are the markers of behavior which suggests the dogs are becoming uncomfortable and that's why a lot of dogs get switched off of toy play because they're inadvertently being socially pressured so much amazing and oh, i'm just trying to process that as well that's fantastic 
Um, and I really like what you're saying there as well about the way we approach the dogs can make such a difference because obviously um, if someone was going to come up to me and wave chocolate in my face, I wasn't going to exactly trust them straight away. Whereas if they sort of go, oh, do you want a piece of chocolate? I'd be more inclined to go, oh, yeah, I'll come to you rather than um, have it waft in my face. <laughs> exactly right. That is exactly right, Elisa, and a fantastic analogy. And like from a dog's perspective, if you think you've got learning history with chocolate, we all have. Um, you yes. know, most people like it very much, so me, me also. But I still wouldn't eat it because it would be um, overwhelming and pressuring. Yeah. As yeah. where if you think about the dog, they're having a weird bit of material wiggled in their face. Yeah. And although it be by mum or dad, a lot of the time it could be quite overwhelming and socially pressuring. So that's a really good analogy. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I always use chocolate as my go-to for any analogy. With yeah. People. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a good analogy. It's a good, it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> awesome and that kind of leans on to the next question a little bit so um this person asks we're all taught about the importance of reward structure in training but what is the best way to methodically figure out the rank and rank sorry what things are the most motivating for them is there an approach to this you'd recommend absolutely and i'm for me in this set of circumstances i like objective observation of the dog outside of a training context to develop an understanding of the things that they like to do on their day-to-day -day. Um, because if you sort of have an objective observation process with your dog on a day-to-day -day basis you'll see and develop an understanding if you're really looking at the things that they really like to do so you know like for a dog that's very food motivated that's going to shine through for a dog that's very object or movement orientated they'll be chasing things they'll be picking things up for a dog that's very tactile or social uh, socially reinforcing motivated you can see them trying to get into contact with mum or dad on a regular basis mm -hmm. for dogs that are very very um reinforced by interactions with other dogs you're going to see that rise through so conversely to just going into training and trying to work out what works which you know I, I also do a great deal of it's really good to objectively observe the dog's behavior on a day-to-day -day basis and work on the reward structure outside of the reward structure and think about it as a reinforcer instead of a reward at least like that's the biggest mistake that people make in my opinion is they always think about what they want the dog to do yeah. rather than how they are going to um, reinforce the dog. And before we reinforce the dogs for behaviours, behavior, reinforcement's taking place all of the time, for any behaviour to get stronger or to be maintained, reinforcement may, must take place. So that's science. But if we were to spend a good amount of time develop, developing the reinforcement strategies mm. separately from behaviours that we're asking for, that's where along with that object, uh, objective observation, where you'll develop a good understanding of the individual and not get stuck in this dogmatic state of, you know, dogs do this, or, you know, a Border Collie does this. That's all completely um, justifiable because, you know, you're going to get a lot of genetic traits or breed traits which cross over. But also dogs are massive individuals. I've met Malinois, but, you know, I've had to do backflips on one foot to try to get <laughs> something it's you know they're the complete opposite so and i've also met labradors that will tear your arm out of their socket whilst playing tuggy with you so yeah. those are two sort of anomalies with inside of the breed and i think a lot of the time what people will spend a great deal of um time doing is trying to work out how to reward the dog for the behavior rather than thinking about the reinforcement structure to begin with and if you can really mm -hmm. develop understanding of the reinforcement structure in isolation by itself once you've got the reward in play separately the behavior is just training at least yeah like, and if you've got a 
like good guidance or you're a skilled professional, you're a skilled trainer, um, or you put a good amount of time into it. Training the dog is stereotypically the easier part of the process. Developing an understanding of what makes them tick, their reinforcement structure and rewarding them well for the behaviors that they execute and perform as you're running through your training or your shaping process is the part that is usually like the most challenging. Yes. Couldn't agree more, actually. And it's funny. I was only thinking about this the other day, and I, I like how you you mentioned that. That's probably the harder part because training my older dogs and training my youngster, I find my youngster harder because I'm trying to figure out what's reinforcing for her still, um, and how to reinforce her in, in in different situations. And yeah, it's it's that like you say, that's probably the more difficult side of it for that first sort of you know first few years of maybe even having that dog. And the thing, the thing is, Elise, is like a lot of people um, tend to not look outside of the box. I always say uh, to people, like the, the, the good answers for dogs that you're struggling with are usually somewhere around the boundary or the outside of the box. Like um, one of the other things that I've done, you know, over the years, I've had like a really big coaching business mm-hmm. where I've coached tons and tons of people with problem behaviours. And a lot of, because I've travelled so much um, and have worked with so many different types of people, I've built relationships with rescue centres in Cyprus. Yep. And I used to work with a lot of hound dogs that would come to the UK as part of rehoming um, from Cyprus. Now, trying to feed those dogs in mm-hmm. a place is an operant behaviour, meaning that you've got to train them and build reinforcement into the process of eating in that location. So asking them to do something for a sweetie in that environment would be completely counterproductive. So mm-hmm. in that set of circumstances, like I would always use a pre-made principle, whereas we would teach the skills at home and then we would like, uh, and it sounds disgusting, but it works really well. Like we teach eye contact, for example, and I yeah. get the go out, lay a bit of horse poo mushed into the ground at a point or the points that they were going to ask for eye contact or a body check. And because we taught the skill of go sniff or go and investigate at home, they get the check in, the dog references back in, they give their reward specific marker to go and sniff. And just like magic, the ground is scattered with horse poo. And the dog's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Every time they ask me to check back in, there's this amazing spot to smell. And, you know, in that set of circumstances, the behavior strengthens because that is what the individual finds most reinforcing rather than it being the case. The dog isn't interested in taking food here. And it's not because for those dogs, non-adaptive arousal is at play either. So Mm -hmm. for a lot of dogs, if they're not able to eat, it's a massive, massive red flag. The dog isn't able to eat, it would suggest that, you know, that adaptive um, arousal threshold is being bridged. But for those dogs, the interest was in the environment. They were still relatively clear headed, but they were in a position in which they just were not interested in food due to learning history and everything that had taken place previously. But giving them access to sniff, a lot of the foundation behaviors, these aren't um, complex sporting behaviors. These are just really simple, you know, referencing back to handler, handler awareness and recall type behaviors were very easily achieved with a pre-mac principle. But that answer lies slightly outside of the box because you've got to do a setup. You've got to take a um, pot of horse poop from you. You've got to go to the stables to collect it. They're all things that people won't typically do, but it works so well in the long run. Wow. Do you know, I wasn't sure where you was going when you said it was a bit disgusting, but um, I must admit <laughs> that is fascinating. And like you say, I mean, a hound, they're, you know, they're genetically bred to, to enjoy sniffing. It's its in their DNA. So that is that is definitely outside the box. I don't think I've ever heard of anything quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So um, next question, and it's actually somewhat similar. Um, and I guess you, you, you've kind of already answered it, but this is a very common thing. And, and I must admit, it's something I experienced with all of my dogs, actually, at some point. But um, 
This person asks, my dog loves toys, but as soon as around, he isn't interested. What can I do to increase the value of the toy? Did, was that as soon as food is around, they're not interested? As soon as food is around, yes. Yeah. So um, one of the principles that occurs here is antecedent influence on behaviour, which is basically the precursor or the dog's expectation before another behaviour occurs. And unfortunately, um, this, well, it, again, it's sciencey, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of people and their antecedent actions, their behaviour suggests that the dog is going to get a particular reinforcer. So if you watch a person with their dog delivering treats or if they've got food available, they stand in a particular way. A lot of people get like itchy trigger finger syndrome where they reach towards the place where the food is. They're very square on. And for their dog, they are telling the dog that they are going to an ice cream shop. They yeah. then give them a toy which is pizza, and they go, I really like pizza, but there's ice cream there, and I'd much rather have that at the moment, thank you very much. So <laughs> it's a case of considering like a few different factors. The alternation between toy and food, mm -hmm. needs to, it needs to be made sure that first of all, toy play is reinforcing, it's introduced in a structured manner, and you know how to increase interest and also moderate arousal through the course of the session. Mm -hmm. You also need to make sure that when you introduce food, the person is finitely aware of their behavior, the actions that they follow, the movements that they do and their behavioral patterns in general, so that they don't stand square on and say to the dog, right kiddo, the ice cream shop's open now, like this is what's available. Because then what happens is it's a real clear sequence of events. They give the dog a sweetie, standing in that same sort of antecedent positioning. They see the dog's interest dip and then they lose hope and don't put exactly the same process back into play to get the dog reinterested. So if I'm working with a dog that is um, going to have the introduction of food put into play, what I would do is I'd work around the introduction of toy play, make sure that all of the variables are as good as they could be. And during the course of the play session, I'd pause, ask the dog to release, mark and reward with your food marker, give the dog a piece of food, like low level, small piece of food, easy for them to eat. And then as I've delivered the food, go straight back into the chase of the toy, making sure that my body language and behavior is adjusted so I'm not standing square onto the dog. And now saying to them, look, there's ice cream here, but I'm trying to get you to eat pizza. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I really like that analogy. I think that makes it very logical, as you say, because, you know, we dogs are similar to us. They, you know, one, one day they're going to prefer having something over the other. So, yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Definitely. That's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> welcome. Um, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be going back and writing all these notes up with, with mine. <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased you're finding it useful. I hope everybody <laughs> listening does as well. I'm sure they will. Awesome. So next question, um, a little bit like what you touched on earlier in terms of um, working with high arousal. What would you do about a dog getting over the top, snatching the toy from you when training and jumping and biting you when frustrated? Perfect. So first of all, um, what you need is what I would call like a, a diagnostic feedback loop during mm -hmm. the training so like diagnostic behavior would be gathering some diagnostic knowledge on what the dog's baseline is um so for example like if i'm training zen yeah when we start off training i will always ask for a sequence of hand touches both stationary and on the move for me and for that dog it means nose to palm slight eye shift towards dad um, and maintain contact regardless of whether I'm hopping up and down on one foot, whether I'm chucking sweets in the air or I'm swinging a toy around. Uh, he has a really good learning history with the behavior and a really good reinforcement history with the behavior. So based on his performance of that behavior, I know where he is diagnostically in correlation to 
baseline. So if I was working with any dog, it could be as simple as a sit. It really needs to be some form of a stationary or duration behavior. So dog starts the session and they're able to perform a sit relatively reliably. For all of the dogs that I work with, I put, on, put in a red light, green light system. So toy up above waist height means, can you offer me something else rather than jumping up and trying to get it because that's where the reinforcement is. In those sets of circumstances, I almost always alternate between toy play and food. So when the dog is offering the behavior, and it could be paws on the floor at least, it doesn't have to be a sit, it just needs to be consistently the dog holding the behavior rather than you know going after the acquisition of the toy. So dog puts, paw on, puts bum on floor, for example. I would mark and reward with a sweetie. Dog is able to stay in position, and then I would click and reward and flick the toy into action, obviously using reward specific markers if the person does so. So toy goes into play, dog is able to go into the engagement of toy play, we ask them to release, that's another diagnostic feedback loop if the dog understands how to let go, it should be sharp and clean with the dog really understanding that there's a reward at the back end of play for them. And then you're in a position once again, whereas you've got a clean loop of play in general. One of the other things to do as well, I'm real, a real, real big advocate of letting the dog win the toy regularly through the course, course of toy play. What we would expect if a dog has got a good return, the dog lets the person lets go of the toy, the dog returns back to mum or dad enthusiastically and they're able to re-engage with play. So you've got like a real nice clear feedback loop with those behaviours. Then it's about making sure that it's not what to do when the dog jumps up and bites the toy, snatches the toy, you want to think about all problem behaviours, changing the behaviour in that antecedent window. So what can I make sure, or what can I do to make sure that the dog understands the criteria of the training session, and what can I then do to make sure that I set the dog up for success so that we don't get them into that position in the first place, and then not in a position in which they're going to consistently be being reinforced for it. Because if you watch a lot of people, dog jumps up, a chest tight and they whip the toy away from it. That's the last thing you want to do. You want to really like be dead still, hold the toy nice and still and say, oh, sweetie, like, what else can you offer for me? Considering that you could easily back chain if you're not careful. So if the dog jumps up, tries to bite the toy and then sits immediately and the person rewards them, you're going to be in a position in which it will likely back chain. So what you can often do in that set of circumstances is wait a three to five second gap or have a slight shift in position and let the dog offer the behavior in a clean loop and then reinforce them for doing so. But if you're Gauging your diagnostics regularly through the course of a session, can the dog offer me that diagnostic behavior cleanly? If they're not able to offer it to you, it would be indicative that arousal is starting to stack. And if you think about like the biology of a dog, as they sniff, it slows down respiration, circulation, and bodily function. So we can easily take a little bit of a rest, giving them some time for sniffing, to bring them down a little bit, reset, ask them for their diagnostic behavior, see how clear it is and then go back into play. But having clear structure with regards to a red light, green line system for me is of optimal importance and then making sure that you're not pushing the dog beyond their adaptive range of arousal because it's not their fault at that point. And if we've got people that are swinging toys around and whipping them away from them, <laughs> Dog doesn't, the dog doesn't understand that they're doing the wrong thing. They're having fun. They're, they're like, oh, mum or dad wants to play with me. They're whipping the toy away at chest height. And it's like, uh, for my dog, the toy up at chest height, there's no way in like, God's earth he would jump up and try to buy it for me. Because since he's been a little baby, like toy up at chest height or toy in hand or toy held away from him, unless I click and give access, means... I've got to offer something. Like, what can I give dad to get that toy from him? Which is where you get like a really nice, clear relationship. And you don't get into all of the conflict that people can do when they're trying to work around what to do when the dog does that thing. It's always about changing the behavior in the antecedent window and giving the dog a very clear alternative behavior. So rather than 
what shall I do when he does that? What would I like him to do instead of that? And that's all in the training structure. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And I really like how structured the red light, green light is because I think that gives such clarity for the dogs. Because um, I can't remember where I read it the other day, but um, it was a, a quote of that, to be clear is to be kind and to be unclear is to be unkind. And I think that's a really good way of demonstrating that, you know, for the dog, they don't understand. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And it's, it's um, the, the simplest, the more simplistic and the clearer that the training is, the more efficient yeah my experience that the training will be and a lot of the time when people try to complexify things it, it goes back to that age-old statement of you know advanced training is just simple training done very very well and, you yeah. know even with advanced behaviors as long as the structure is clear and simple for the dog to develop an understanding of even when you start to work through complex change uh, sorry chains rather the building blocks are nice and simple and easy for the dog to develop an understanding of Wow, no, that that's amazing. Thank you. Um, You're very <laughs> I'm blown away by every question so far. Um, that's good. <laughs> so, um, next one. Um, I imagine this is something you deal with quite a lot with your coaching. Tips for dogs who will play with toys at home and training, but not at shows. I did have several of these, so this one had to be. <laughs> Absolutely. So, like, what we have to think about is two factors so first of all the generalization concept of toy play um, is based upon a clear structure so dogs typically need predictability to generalize any behavior and although toy play is a reinforcer it is you know by definition a behavior so when people play with their dogs at home a lot of the time it's very much the case that the dog goes and grabs the toy and brings it to mum or dad. That can't yeah. be replicated when they're at a show inevitably. And when they introduce toy play at home, they tend to do it as we all would do. At least, you know, everybody included is we're down, you know, on our knees yes. in the living room floor and we're rolling around with a puppy and we're having a great time. Nobody replicates that when they're outside at a show. And if you think about the differentiation between, you know, the, uh, the living room and an agility show, it would be comparable from like paintballing to a war zone like it's yeah. there's two it's such a vast differentiation between the two environments so like number one is making sure that you've got a really clear way of how to introduce toy play typically you'd want to replicate a pattern that can then be replicated when you're out and about so for example your diagnostic behavior to get started a sit for example you could creep a couple of steps away from your dog when they're in position as the dog is in position waiting for you what you would expect to see is muscular tension and forward focus on mum the same type of muscular tension that you wouldn't want if they were looking at another dog so they're focused on mum waiting on dad or whoever's unhandling them so that they're waiting for them to be released they release the dog the dog then chases after the toy as the dog chases the toy three to five seconds of chase dog grips onto the toy a nice um, like considerable game of tug that the dog finds reinforcing, a win so that the dog wins the toy, they return back into mum or dad, they start the game again, we pause, we ask for a release, we reinforce the release and then we get started again. And if we were going to finish the game, what we would do is give a really clear finish. You could use like a finish cue and scat some food down to the ground. That gives you a predictable structure. And then from the living room, what you've basically got to do is to take your end goal. If that is an agility show, it's a complex end goal because there's so much going on. Yeah. You need to reverse engineer that into singular building blocks. So from the living room, it may be to the hallway. From the hallway, it may be to the kitchen. From the kitchen, it may be to the back garden. From the back garden, it may be from like the slabs, if, as long yeah. as you're not gonna have the dog on the slabs, onto the grass. From the grass, it may then be to the green next door to the garden. From the green next door to the garden, it may be to the green over the road, etc., etc., etc. until you're starting to consider 
the generalization process. The problem being is that what a lot of people will do is they'll try to replicate the behavior in one environment like the living room, and then they go to another location like an agility environment and wonder why they don't get it. If you've got a genetically gifted dog, Elise, that is very possible. Yeah. I've, I've um, helped like, or, or bought on or trained like a lot of young working dogs, Malinois specifically. You play with them in the living room, you, you can take them to a train station and play with them and they're confident and as happy as they were in the living room. That's that's a dog that is genetically gifted. Um, and But I still wouldn't suggest doing that. You want to make sure that you think of it as a house. You lay a solid foundation of concrete and then you put one brick in place at a time to make sure that if you put another brick on top of the one that you've just got in place, if something goes wrong, you can easily spot the difference between the two locations. So it may be the case that, oh, I went to the field yesterday mm. and there were two dogs at a distance of approximately 20 meters, um, but they were both minding their own business and sniffing. I went to the other field today, there were two dogs at a distance of approximately 25 meters, but both of them were running around and having fun with each other. So th there you've easily got the differentiation or the variable between the two. And then yeah. all we've got to do is meet somewhere in the middle to make sure that we're able to develop the generalization process. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's really, it's really good to highlight that actually with the generalization of play because i think it gets forgotten like you say some dogs are genetically gifted and, and can cope with it but actually are we sometimes putting the dog in a situation with their play where it's just not ready for that environment it's, it's very much the case at least yeah. and it's like again if we lead back to the very first question that you asked me i think it was yeah. a very good one when i mentioned social pressure and play what if people haven't got a a play process that is based on the choice, the dog's choices to engage in play. What does a person do when they feel that their dog is struggling? Typically what a person will do is try to be more, in inadvertent commas, exciting. Yeah. What does more exciting, in inadvertent commas, look like to a dog? It looks like the handler shouting, ready, smashing the toy off of the floor and wiggling it in their face. If yeah. you've got a dog that is, you know, uh, not quite so comfortable in that type of location, what they're gonna do is go, oh my God, this is the worst thing in God's earth. Don't ever, 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 ever engage with a toy at this location. And it actually becomes quite an aversive experience rather than if we've put a lot of work into a dog chasing a toy before they bite onto it. Yeah. We've got a really clear sequence and we follow that sequence. The dog's able to engage in like a very choice orientated game and you're able to build them at their own pace. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that's really clear structure there as well for them as well. That's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> um, amazing. So next question, slightly similar. Um, so, I, you know, if you want to skip this, I can cut this bit. But um, I'll tell you the question first. So this person asks, dog will play with a toy in a queue, but has no interest after a run. So um, it, it might not be quite so different. I remember uh, years ago, Marita showed me a video of the German team with their Shelties and they didn't play after the um, oh. after the run. And she said, what do you think of it from a behavioral perspective? And I said, I think that the dogs are finding the running really intrinsically reinforcing. So mm -hmm. the of doing the behavior itself was intrinsic, um, intrinsically reinforcing. And I think that in that set of circumstances, there's plenty of evidence to suggest, I didn't look into it greatly, that the reinforcement that the dogs experience through the course of the running, which is quite unique, is why it is what they're using as reinforcement. So it's the case that the dog has done the run. They found the run so reinforcing that then they would jump up and they were sharing tactile affection with the dog afterwards. The case study that I saw, it's not case study, but Marita showed me it. That's my science and brain coming in play. But the, the dog that, the, that Marita showed me, 
the dog was was voluntarily jumping into the handler's arms and was having a cuddle and really clearly by their behavior markers enjoying it so it would be the case of has the dog found the run reinforcing in its own right or is the dog in a position conversely because this is one of the other things that it could be is it the fact that the spike of arousal paired with mm. the environment so the spike of arousal from the run and then the exposure to the environment is impeding the dog's play and it could be either of them it could absolutely be either of them what we would want to do is to gauge the difference between the dog's ability to play after a run um at like a training session then building up to potentially like a group training session and then building up to uh, a public space or like a seminar type setting and then from there building towards shows and if there's a cutoff line whereas the dog will play and won't play we very very likely got to spot the difference i wouldn't mind betting that in the setting of the dog that i saw the person probably used some type of food reinforcement mm -hmm. to reinforce behaviors regularly but but any type of competition setting and regularly during training, they would follow the same process of, you know, intrinsic reinforcement for the dog running and then tactile affection at the back end, which was very much a celebration. If the dog is playing on a day-to-day -day basis during training, it would then be a case of just building so that we can recognize the difference between where the dog does play and where the dog doesn't play. And then generalizing that concept so that you're in a position in which you can build play back into the structure. Because if a dog's in a position in which they're so aroused they can't play, or so stressed that they can't play, that wouldn't be a good thing. That would be completely the opposite. So it's, it's a question of two halves, very much so, um, because it could be, you know, environmental stress. It could be um, increasing arousal through the course of play. It could be the case that the dog finds the run itself reinforcing. Any of those could be true, but it's very, very dependent on the individual. But if the dog is playing in the queue, again, I can't say without seeing the dog, because, you know, behavior markers tell a story in their, themselves it would be suggested that there is some type of a spike happening either from the intrinsic value of the run or the um, sort of environment paired with the uh, arousal that's incorporated in the run. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's really interesting. And I like how um, the case study as well, I think that's a really interesting one for other people to kind of think about. Like I say, you know, sometimes the act of the actual agility can be the reward as well, accompanied with the, with the tactile affection <laughs> Dog. Yeah, particularly if you think of a dog like a Border Collie or a Sheltie, which, you know, the selective, human selective breeding um, dictates that they are very, very much herding dogs. Mm. And that's why a lot of people struggle with the ability to develop concise skills during the course of agility because the dogs are so reinforced by the running itself so if you get a really herdy border collie typically they can be a little bit more challenging to train than a dog that's got generations and generations of agility dog in them which i'm sure yeah. you, like you know quite well so it's it's the case of which is it is it the case that the dog is very reinforced by the running itself or is it the case that it's the other factors that we talked about yeah, definitely. And I guess another factor to throw in there could be fitness, potentially. is the... 100%. 100%. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, that's, me, that's me presuming that the dogs that we're talking about are all fit and well. But if they're completely exhausted at the back end of the <laughs> yes, that would ex be exactly right as well, Elise. Very good spot. Yeah, no, I think I think mostly from my own perspective, if I came out of a run and then I was told to do some jumping jacks or or do a quick spin around, and I, I think I'd tell the person where to go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Unless they offered you chocolate, by the sounds of it, That's that might true. be the thing. They offered me chocolate. I think I would do extra jumping jacks just for that. Um, <laughs> super. So, next question. Um, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but if there's any kind of pointers you want to add to it, that'd be great. But mm -hmm. how to toy drive in puppies? How to? Sorry, it cut out a little bit there. How so, to what? 
Um, how to build toy drive in puppies? Absolutely. So with regards to toy driving puppies, the first thing that you've got to be considerate of is obviously their little soft joints are developing. So we yeah. can't do a great deal of movement. I very much like to focus on the same process, but very much sort of dumbed down, so to speak, as I would do an adult mm -hmm. dog with gentle chasing being my foundation, like the chasing of the toy using a longer version toy. But the problem being like a lot of people make the mistake is when they start toy play, they always go ahead by using a longer handle toy, like mm -hmm. a, a fluffy chaser and the dog bites the rope consistently. That's typically because they've not had enough reinforcement history with the lower part of the bottom. So if I've got a puppy, what I'll typically do is select something like a roadkill toy um, or a rolled up tea towel works really well depending on you know what the dog prefers. And I would work on them chasing the toy with me holding it. It's a little bit longer so they get used to consistently targeting the toy. And then once they have a developed reinforcement history with the law, then you'd attach a boring extension like a bit of string. So that's how you get a dog to consistently target the bottom part of a toy. The chasing is super important so that the dog is able to chase and build the tenacity and the belief that they can catch the toy when it's on the move. Um, when the dog grips the toy, being really considerate of the amount of effort that they put in and making them feel invincible for me is massively important. Yeah. So when they're pulling and weight shifting, even if you've got like a couple of kilo little puppy, I really like it as they put the effort in where... <laughs> acting out and dragging us across the floor and then letting them win the toy. After the winning of the toy, I very, very much like to shape the retrieve when they're puppies so that they're quite happy to return back to us and they're reinforced heavily for doing so, so that we don't get into the conflict that a lot of people do at the back end of the game. And then also making sure that people don't get too bought into the fact that if a dog, you teach a dog to release too early, it will uh, interfere with their toy play. Like mm -hmm. if you've got a dog with really good toy motivation, um, teaching the release at a young age, the retrieve and the release works really, really well. All of my puppies, God, for I can't remember how long, like one of the first things I teach them is to retrieve things and let things go. That's not like a formal retrieve, that's just a toy play retrieve and a let go. And there's yeah. good, they, they are behaviors that will pay me back so, so often I and mean, so, so regularly through the course of their adult life. If you've got a dog that's very food driven, then you would tilt the scales ever so slightly and you focus a little bit more on those factors, absence or in the absence of like the food for the release to begin with. And then you would build the food or factor the food in as you progress on. But it's basically just a condensed or a softened version version of what you would do with an adult dog yeah yeah and I like what you say about the um the gentle kind of um chasing I think that's really important for the puppies and I say with the joints as well being being careful with them um, yes and it's very very important because it's easy to go um because puppies if you <laughs> usually got like the self-preservation of something with absolutely no brain cells so they yeah. end up like <laughs> charging into things and they really easily hurt themselves so manipulating the chase so that it does start to get a little bit more challenging but really looking after their joints is very important yeah 100 percent. i really like that thank you um next question i think this is really interesting in, oh, i can't get words out i think this is a really interesting one as well so this person asks what do you think of having some toys that you only use as a reward when going to agility and not for anything else and are there any pros or cons to it Absolutely. So like the only pro to it is it's something that has novelty, which means, well, I say the only pro, one of the pros is it that you have novelty in the toy. The big con of having a toy that you use all of the time is if you had a fluffy chaser in the house, you know, for, for the love of God, like any dog at some point would realise that it's really fun to tear the fluff out of it. Yeah. And yeah. That could then impede 
the play because when the dog wins the toy he goes thanks mum or dad i'm going to tear the fluff out of it now because that's what i've been doing at home for all of these hours each and every day so yes like for us in our house we've got a big old toy bucket at home with lots of fluffy teddies in and all of the dogs have access to that for me personally um i use either fluffy chasery type toys or some type of an extension chaser when i'm training my own dog and he doesn't have access to those at home because of that reason inevitably um he'd find it really fun to tear the fluff out of them but also the novelty is that we only use those um uh toys during uh training sessions however with the level of drive and motivation that he's got he would play with anything, at least. Like, if, if I was to get a toy out and play with it, it could be a rolled-up tea towel, um, it could be a bit of hose pipe, it could be anything. He'd be really quite happy to play with me with it. But if you've got a dog that is lacking a little bit in motivation, the novelty aspect of using their favourite toy consistently would be beneficial in my experience because they get access to that thing to share with mum or dad. It again goes back to, we'll use your chocolate analogy. If you've got a chocolate tap on the wall at home all of the time and you've got access and access and access to it, it becomes something that is really amazing but that you've got access to all of the time. As where if you get a square of chocolate, you know, a couple of times a week, it's the novelty involved makes it much more reinforcing. That is a very human um analogy and the reason i'm doing it is because it's a very human analogy but having something that's got the novelty aspect does work really really well in my experience yeah definitely and I, i'm just thinking now if i can get a chocolate tap for, <laughs> for <you. laughs> we um, don't need we don't need chocolate taps at least <laughs> that would that would be a bad idea for everybody I think. um but yeah i think human analogies are really useful because sometimes that's i i find i don't know if you're the same when you're kind of teaching people um it's it's an easier way to kind of get it across i guess um absolutely 100 percent. it's um it's always the case that when you're teaching somebody that doesn't do what we do for a living it's making sure that you're giving them the most value as is possible and something that's very relatable to in my experience so giving human analogies works fantastically well yeah Definitely. Awesome. So um, we're on to, well, this can be the last question or there is another question I can add in. It depends how you're doing for time. <laughs> yeah, I've still, got, I've still got a little bit left. Okay. So um, next question. This person was asking in terms of retrieves. So they want to teach their puppy a gun dog retrieve. Do you find teaching a formal retrieve can impede on the toy play at all? Or is there any aspect to it? That yeah, it's... Um... This is something that I think is really misunderstood. Um, there's such a big difference between a formal retrieve and a toy play retrieve. Um, like if you jump onto Instagram and you watch like any of Zen's retrieving videos, like he retrieves like a steel bowl to me back to the heel position. He holds it with like his front teeth. He delivers it back, comes into the foot or the heel position, and it's a very trained behaviour. If you watch Zen retrieve toy when they're playing, he's like a raving lunatic. He picks it up, like flies back through the air, and I catch it in my hand, and we have a really good game with each other. Um, the Both of the behaviours are operant. I've taught both of them, but the criteria of the two behaviours is completely separate. As like with a toy... With a toy retrieve, there's lots of ways to teach that. Um, with a formal retrieve, I usually back chain the process so the dog's in a position in which they understand the terminal behavior, the hold first, and then I just back chain it so that then the dog is able to collect and return back in. They should be, in my opinion, if you're teaching like a real clinical hold and retrieve with no mouthing and like a terminal present, two completely separate behaviors and no crossover. Um, yeah. So in short, no, it wouldn't influence your toy play and they would be 
completely unrelated apart from the reinforcement history that the dog would gather from collecting a toy regularly and holding things in their mouth yeah yeah awesome. that makes sense yeah no definitely fab thank you um okay so last question um i've saved this one to last because i think it's a really fun one to finish on okay. if you have one toy to train with for the rest of your life what would it be and why <laughs> pause trading make a toy called oh god i think it's called like the roadkill chaser um yeah. which they made they're a fantastic company um they made years ago because i would always buy long plaited fleeces about a meter 1.2 meters long and roadkilled separately and i would wrap them wrap the plaited fleece around the roadkill toy mm -hmm and use it as, a, as an extension. So they made one, um, which was very kind of them. So if I only had one toy to play with um, in my bag, that's the one that I would take because I could cut the uh, roadkill toy off at the end and yeah. use it to throw back and forth and sort of gauge interest and let the dog make a very choice orientated decision to engage with the toy. Once they've built up reinforcement history with the toy, um, I'd then be able to attach the extension. The roadkill was very soft and easy for dogs to be able to grip onto, which works fantastically well. You always want to try to make sure that the material or the substance of the toy is easy for a dog to grip into. I'm probably getting the word wrong um, or the way that they describe it, but it is, it's like the roadkill chaser toy um, would be the one, that, the one that I would use definitely. I did wonder if that would be the one actually because I, I think um, it was a pause trading um, day that they did at your centre. Um, yes. Yeah. And I, I actually came along to that with my youngest puppy. And yes. oh my God, she has been obsessed with that toy ever since. It's her favourite. <laughs> After a place, but everyone loves it and it gets used that much. But yeah, it, it's such a nice toy for them because it's, it's not very, like, um, I guess, tough on them, if that makes no. sense. No, nice and soft yeah nice and soft easy for them to grip very easy to teach targeting with very adaptable easy to fold up and conceal into a training vest or you know um like tucked into your trousers or whatever you do when you're like, training Most <laughs> most people do if they're wearing leggings like it's easy to conceal it's very yeah. easy produce um works very well from a chasing perspective because it's long enough to provide a good amount of chase for adult dogs um the material the dogs lend really favorably with it doesn't cause excessive mouthing or encourage it so yeah it works really really well as a toy that would be that would be the one for sure amazing um i'll um i'll have to put a link in the show notes for anyone wanting to see which toy that is and then they can yeah they're super um like i've used them i bought toys for them for years and years and years uh pause trading and they are in my opinion uh, like the, the best that they make absolutely fantastic toys across the board and if ever I need something special making or there's a particular dog that needs helping out with something they're always so so open to helping out they're a wonderful company um, yes. and they work really really well yes 100% and I'd be surprised if there's anyone that doesn't compete that hasn't seen them at shows and and things like that but yeah they they do make some of the best toys out there 100% yeah. awesome so Thank you so much for, for all of your expertise and answering those questions for us. I do really appreciate it. So for anyone that's wanting to find out more in terms of toy play um, or learn more about the Ogilvy Dog Centre or even um, the coaching you're doing, can you give them an idea where to find you? Yeah, the, the easiest place to find me is uh, Craig Ogilvy Dogs on Instagram, um, also Craig Ogilvy on Facebook. Instagram's my most used platform. The Ogilvy Dog Centre is exactly that the Ogilvy Dogs Training Centre on both uh, Instagram and Facebook and you can check out all of the events course running nights and uh, seminars and shows that we've got coming up 
in the winter period there. Um, but yeah, any questions for me, just fire them through on Instagram as I'll always take some time to get back to you. Amazing. Thank you. And I'll put a link as well to um, the um, the centre's website as well, because there's so much information on there as well for um, coaching and all sorts, isn't there? So that's brilliant. Super. Well, thank you so much for um, taking your time out of your day to join me. And um, yeah, I'm sure I'll catch up with you soon. <laughs> You're very welcome, Elise. Keep awesome. up the work. See you thank soon. You. Take care. Cheers. Bye.